podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome back to the Anglo-Italian pod in the latest episode of our Away From Home series where we're focusing on players and managers who have played or managed abroad as well as in England. And today I'm delighted to be able to introduce um, ex-Premier League legend, um, Newcastle United, Sunderland, Fulham, Lee Clark. Lee, how are you today? Uh, Good morning. Yeah, I'm great. Thank you. Uh, Delighted to be on the show. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, thanks for coming on. We've been excited about this one for a while. Um, so, where are you calling us from at the moment? What are you up to? I'm currently in Liverpool at the moment. Um, my son uh, plays for Liverpool Football Club. Made his debut this season in the Premier League and Carabao Cup. So, uh, yeah, I've been down to spend a few days with him, and um, you know, and then I'll be uh, going back up to the northeast uh, later on today. Nice. How does that feel seeing your son coming out for a Premier League team? That must be an incredible feeling, right? Oh, I was ridiculously proud when he made his debut um, v Bournemouth in the 9-0 victory. Um, mm-hmm. That was uh, topped anything that I achieved during my career um, because he made a big decision when he was 15, nearly 16, to to leave Newcastle and, and come to Liverpool. And uh, for him, a year later down the line, which is beyond our wildest dreams, to be playing in the first team with world-class players, but also a world-class for a world-class manager. Mm-hmm. We couldn't, we, we, we never thought that uh, his trajectory would be that quick. And then, and obviously since then, he's had a few more games and uh, been delighted and, you know, couldn't be with it better manager or a better club yeah well that's it Jurgen Klopp right he's one of the it must be incredible like obviously talking to your son working with someone like that I imagine he's finding the experience incredibly uh, rewarding right working with him absolutely yeah he's he's a very hands-on manager his man management mm. skills seem to be brilliant he's he treats everyone the same to the the most famous senior player to the youngest player in the group so uh, yeah he's the feedback I get from from my son is real positive. Uh, he's helped him settle in really well, and uh, yeah, it's it's going great. But as I well know, you know the experiences I've had in my career, there'll be ups and downs. But mm-hmm. I'm sure people inside the football club, they'll they'll, they'll help him, uh, you know, navigate through that. Very nice. Well, Lee, we're going to get on to your career and we always start in the same place and we start with how you got into football. Who was it who kind of encouraged your obsession with football and how did you start playing? Well, the story's quite uh, crazy, really. Um, in my primary school then, which is basically a, an infant and junior school up to the age of 11. Um, I was six years of age at the time and uh, I was just playing with my other school friends with the ball in the in the schoolyard and uh, during a, a, you know uh, a break period and um, the football teacher at the time a teacher called Mr Jim Horrocks who ended up playing a huge part in my in my football life he came past and he asked if I had my boots because the football team were playing that night after school and they were short of one or two players I didn't have my boots but I didn't live far from the school so it wouldn't take mm-hmm. us 
get them. And uh, I'd done that and um, was a sub that day. We came on and then played ever since. So I was a six-year-old wow. in the under-11 team. So uh, it went from there, really. So it was it was by mistake. It was because of the, the football teacher seeing mm-hmm. me in the, in the playground. And were you always, like, did you know at school that you were kind of better than most people? Was it clear that there was, like, an ability difference or...? No, oh, listen, you know, when things like that happen and then obviously you get into the team a couple of weeks later and you're there all the time and playing at that age, you know, against boys who are five-year-old and yet, which, it, you know, at that type of age makes a lot of difference, but mm-hmm. you're more on your own. Then obviously you got flagged up by the famous Walls End Boys Club, but because of my age, I wasn't uh, uh, legally allowed to play in their youngest mm-hmm. team under 11 team um um but they did they flaunted the rules a little bit <laughs> nice <laughs> I used, to put, I used to put me down as someone else in the team <laughs> had a different name uh, so i really shouldn't be saying that because <laughs> historical punishments going on but uh yeah listen and then obviously got to play for the city boys team and um it went from there really and then from the age of about 10 11 uh, it was no academies around then. It was centre of excellences, and mm-hmm. uh, Newcastle United centre of excellence, where we used to train twice a week after school, and uh, you know, and that then progressed me. Well, and and you kind of came through at your boyhood club, right? The team you supported as a child. You were a Newcastle United fan. Um, how did it feel to be able to like when you signed those professional papers and you were like, I'm a Newcastle United player? That must have been a very surreal experience. That's the word, surreal. Um, I first went to support them in 1980. That was my first game. Um, you know, we were just a mid-table, you know, championship club as it was then. It's second division in the in the in the format it was, but uh, you know we. But then in two years later, when we signed the then England captain, Kevin Keegan, in 1982, the club then became high profile and uh, you couldn't get a you couldn't get a ticket for the game and everything was sold out. And um, but you never, ever think that you can when you're seeing these guys on the pitch that like someone normal from the East End in Newcastle can emulate them. You, you don't understand the process. You don't believe how you could be there. But then as you get a bit older and, and things start to happen, you know, um, early teens and stuff like that, when a clamour of clubs are trying to sign you, um, you realise, well, something could happen. You're living the mm-hmm. dream, basically. So that that's how it all come about. Nice. And you were part of an incredible Newcastle team. So as you said, you kind of, I think in your first season, you got promoted from the old second division into the Premier League under Kevin Keegan. Um and then you were part of that Newcastle team that finished runners-up twice with that kind of infamous season that became one of the most famous seasons in Premier League history now. Um, how would you describe like being managed by Keegan? Um, and the team at the time was a very exciting team, right? Yeah, I mean, I got my debut before Kevin came. Uh, you know, the late Jim Smith uh, mm-hmm. manager when I was 17 and gave us my debut down at Bristol City. Uh, Ozzy Ardelis then took it on and gave a, a lot of us young players a lot of confidence in our heads. And then obviously Kevin came in and took the club to a new level, as you said, uh, took us 
from the there, you know, the lower regions of the then or what is now is the championship, uh, stopped us from going up through the trap door to League One there. Mm-hmm. Next, we just steamrolled the division and then uh, took the Premier League by storm. We, I think, the lowest in Kevin's five and a half, six years as a Premier League manager. We finished sixth, and as you say, tw- twice finished second. On one occasion, should have really have wrapped the Premier League up, but you know the the experience that the Man United lads had showed on us in the end. So uh, a, a ridiculous rise, mm-hmm. uh, a ridiculous turnaround in a club, very similar to what's going on there now. Uh, the 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 uh, similarities are, are scary, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, yeah, so yeah, a great a great period. I mean. People talk about then if you finish in second, you don't get remembered. Seconds, nothing, and that's probably right. But we are still very, very fondly remembered at Newcastle United. If this mm-hmm. team goes one further and can win something, maybe it knocks us all off the shelf. <laughs> no, but I think you're right. I think anyone who's a Premier League fan remembers that Newcastle team. And even if it was second to, as you said, that Manchester United team and that manager, I think the team is still remembered quite fondly. But if we quickly talk about that season, you kind of talked about it. There was a 10-point, 12-point gap at one point. How did it feel when you had Manchester United behind you and you could see them kind of creeping up? Was that like, was it a mental challenge? Was it something within the squad that people were aware of? Well, you know what happened... um... Because it was ended up being a two-horse race mm. quite early in the season, and the final few months, um, Sky Television then decided that um, they wanted us both to be on the live games. But rather than have all these games that they have now, in terms of three or four games per day on a weekend, it was either we would play on the Sunday Super Sunday, mm-hmm. or we. Under night football and vice versa to Man United, and uh, what sticks in my mind with Man United was they had two players. They had fantastic players all over the pitch, but two players who stood out when they were catching us up was Peter Schmeichel, mm-hmm. Eric Cantona, and uh, you know they had a couple of one nil results as they were reducing the gap on us and Schmeichel was being phenomenal at one end and Cantona was either making or assisting the goals at the other one and uh, when they crept up and eventually caught us up and went past us um, they, they, they were they were the ones and no no uh, better signal of that was, was the Monday night game at St James's which we lost 1-0 and Peter Schmeichel played unbelievable and uh, Cantona produced some magic for for their goal. Mm -hmm. And you kind of talked about it, kind of the similarities between Newcastle then and Newcastle now. Can you see similarities between Keegan and Howe in how they're managing their philosophy towards football? Can you see some similarities there? Absolutely, because no matter what stage the game's at, uh, no matter how the team have been playing, uh, they're always on the front foot. They're always looking to score. You know, there's been talk in the last few games they haven't scored a lot of goals, but that hasn't been down to not making chances. That's just not they haven't been taking that chances. Whereas mm-hmm. in the season, so um, what probably people will say is the difference. And we always got this thrown at us 
probably because of the famous Liverpool 4-3 games that we weren't great defensively, we were a little bit gung-ho. Um, but in all honesty, we always were in the top three for our defensive record. But where Eddie and his team have took it to a new level, you know, their defensive record is just off the map, really. Ten mm-hmm. clean sheets, 16 in all uh, in all this season, which is a phenomenal record. So, um, you know, the basis of that team and and what they can do attacking-wise, that they're still not, it's not taken away from the attacking side. It's, as I said, they haven't scored the amount of goals they probably would have liked in the last five games, but that's nothing to do with that they're not creating chances. They are creating numerous chances. They're just not being as uh, aggressive or as potent as they were earlier in the mm-hmm. season. So hopefully that'll come back very, very quickly. Yeah, it feels like this, I think Newcastle are overachieving for what people expected this soon, right? And I feel like they're still a club and a team that's being built, right? They're doing it relatively sensibly. I think they're not just throwing money about, they're doing it sensibly. But you can see the progress and maybe give it another season, especially if Newcastle finish top four this year. I think you'll really see a kick on and you can get that striker. Like Even if Izak is fit a little bit more, I think he could be that piece as well, right? Well, yeah, he's... In the last few weeks, he's come back into the fold after a little bit of a long-term injury, and he's made huge impacts. He's he's obviously scored the winner against Fulham, mm-hmm. and then he made the goal for Joe Linton in the in the first leg of the semi-final. Callum Wilson come back. He's always yeah. been a, a, a great goal scorer, you know, and he'll come back hitting hitting the target in the non too distant future and go on a run again. He that his career path tells you that he you know that's happened throughout his career. Um, so yeah, I mean, listen, I was listening. You're listening to all different media outlets, and obviously Newcastle on everyone lips, and you you still do get uh, a few people who are saying that there has been a lot of money spent when, mm. um, the, the, you know, when you think about the takeover. Within the first few weeks, you were taught people were mentioning the likes of Mbappe and yeah, yeah, yeah. the football club. And but what they've done, they've done it in a pragmatic and a sensible way. And mm. every single player that's been brought into the club uh, since the new ownership have come in and Eddie Howe's come in as the head coach, then followed by Dan Ashworth, they've all made a tremendous contribution to to what what stage the club was at. I.e., for example, Chris Wood, who's just now moved back. To Nottingham, moved on to Nottingham Forest. He was brought in to be the focal point in a team that was fighting relegation this time last year. Mm-hmm. And he made a huge contribution to that, scored some couple of important goals that got, you know, one goal victories. And uh, you know, as the as the standard and the and the position of the team progressed, obviously Chris became surplus to requirements, but he's, he'd made he's, he'd, he'd done a terrific job for what he's brought in. The other signings Eddie, unbelievably, hasn't and the club haven't got one wrong yet. They've all no. been, they've all been brilliant. And uh, also, what Eddie's done, he's um, developed players that were, and he's made, he's transformed players that weren't playing particularly well before he came here. Joe Linton, you know, I, I made a comment yesterday, and it wasn't flipping, it wasn't trying to be derogatory. It was, it's the easiest way to to explain his transformation was. Before Eddie came, Joe Linton was being looked at at one of the wor- the club's worst ever signings. And since mm. he arrived in this, and if he keeps talking to me now, he'd be he'd be looked at as one of the club's best ever signings. And that's the mm. turnaround. And uh, Sean Longstaff, Almiron, you know, there's there's many many players who were here, who were probably playing the best football of their career, 
uh, you know, because of the, the, the coaching that Eddie and his staff are giving those players and the information. Mm. No, no, it's incredible to see. I think Eddie Howe really is. He's, I think maybe people doubted him after the Bournemouth job, but I think he's kind of proving a lot of people wrong at the moment. But, um, but we're going to... done terrific things at Bournemouth, you know. The, there's a limit to what can be achieved at Bournemouth, unfortunately. Mm. Um, in terms of because of the size of that stadium, I'm sure if they had a, a bigger stadium, that you know they could fill it even more. But you know, it, it's difficult. And and where he brought them from, it that you know mm-hmm. the bottom tier all the way up, phenomenal job. And you know, six months it didn't go particularly well in terms of. But you have to put it into perspective of what he'd done. What he's done since then, he's obviously gone away and he's looked. I've, I've listened to him. He's he had a lot of self-assessment and, uh, you know, looked at what he could have done better and, and went out and picked other people's brains. And he's, he, I felt it was unfair when he was appointed that people were just saying, oh, he's, he's coming in because he's got Premier League experience of fighting a relegation battle. He'll keep the club up and then the, the club will go for a so-called big name. I, I always thought that was derogatory to Eddie. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's quickly shown that uh, we don't need anyone else we don't need a big name he's more than capable and he's on the way to be coming uh, up alongside the joe harveys uh the kevin keegan's the sir bobby robson's of, of newcastle mm-hmm. and, and rightly so and if if we can get to the final and we can win it he'll be deciding which side of sir bobby robson his statue yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. We need to go back to your career a little bit, and we're going to go to your next club. Now, it's a bit of a strange one. I was trying to look at players that have moved directly between the two teams, and I couldn't find too many. But after Newcastle, you you move across to Sunderland. How did that move come about? Um, and how was it to play under Peter Reid? Again, another team where you tore the championship to pieces and got promoted. How was your experience at Sunderland until the end? We'll get on to the end. Um. Listen, I decided to move from Newcastle. They offered me a new deal, but towards the end, my game time had decreased and I, I wanted to play football. So I met numerous clubs. Uh, Peter Reid, through my ex-teammate Paul Bracewell, who was his assistant at the time, contacted me and agreed a fee with Newcastle, so got permission to speak. I went across. He was the last person and manager and club I met out of this five or six, sort of a junior mm-hmm. exactly. And uh, he blew me away. I, I felt there was a similarity to, to what I'd been working with with Kevin Keegan. Um, he wanted to build a successful team. The team was just going into the Stadium of Light. That was another exciting proposition. And uh, obviously I had Paul there, who I looked up to. Paul Bracewell was a you know senior player, a mentor of mine. So I, um, yeah... It meant I didn't have to move home. Just had things <laughs> done at the time, so the family situation came into the, uh, you know, my thought process. And uh, yeah, listen, it was two fantastic years on the field. Played for a manager I loved, uh, and his staff, and also a great set of uh, lads, teammates, and the fans took to me. Mm-hmm. Really, because I hit the ground running and I produced good performances, and uh, yeah, it was. In terms of football, it was terrific. 
Mm, I saw that you had, I think, your best goal-scoring season at Sunderland with 13 in the first season, and you were playing alongside Kevin Phillips. Now, how much better was he than the, than the level he was playing at? Because he was putting up ridiculous numbers in the championship. Yeah, well, Kevin um, came from Watford is a little bit of an unknown, very similar to me in, in the timescale. Obviously, I was the club record signing, and Kevin came a little bit under the radar. We could see straight away this was an unbelievably talented footballer. He had great technique. He was a great finisher. He, he for a small lad, he had great head and ability. He had mm -hmm. a great jump on him. And he was unfazed. He had total belief, which when I've been lucky enough to play with some crazy strikers in my career. And Kevin was exactly the same as all them, which all the top strikers. He had this unwavering belief that he was going to score uh, every time he had the ball and he wasn't frightened to miss chances, which all these top strikers do. And, uh, yeah, he was absolutely sensational. And it was uh, it was quite simple, that front two that we had that year, of Kevin and Niall Quinn, because Niall was very, very underestimated. People just seen six foot five, six foot six guy, and they thought, oh, they're just going to lump high balls to him. Niall had unbelievable touch, great awareness, uh, you know, could link up. The two of them had a great partnership, but also, you know, great link up with midfield players and wide players. So when you're a midfield player and you have that type of strike force ahead of you, um, it becomes quite simple, really. You just have to make sure you give them enough opportunities. And uh, obviously their, their numbers were, were brilliant. Mm, yeah, they both like, and then Kevin Phillips again moving up into the Premier League, can put, like continued that form right until he got to the England squad. Now, your time at Sunderland ended in quite an interesting way, um, where you, the fact you're a Newcastle fan may have may have come out. Um, so you wore a T-shirt that Sunderland fans didn't re react particularly well to. How do you look back on that now? And do Sunderland fans laugh about it now, or do you still get people on Twitter kind of shouting about it? Uh, I don't know. I'm not on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the 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 word war was no. It was put on this. I had it. It was on me for about thirty seconds. Mm -hmm. Lenses were clicking for fun. Um, do, what do I think about it now? It's something I regret because mm. I'm a lot older, a lot experienced. Got you know my sons in the game and obviously other children. <clears throat> and it's it's sad way for at the end because. Mm. There's still Sunderland fans who hold that against me, and I, I totally get that. You know, I'd, uh, I'd, I'd been derogatory about them when the T-shirt was on. You kind of do that. You kind of bite the hand that feeds you. Obviously, my time at the football club had to come to an end. Um, and it was a shame because, as I said, the two years I had there were, went fantastically well. I think maybe some of them have forgave. Um but it's you know when you only play at three clubs and two sets of fans you know really take to you when you go back. I mean I've only ever been back to the stadium late once to watch a game. Don't want to put myself or anyone else in a situation where you know it can blow up. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I understand uh, how the Sunderland fans feel about that. You know you you would be disappointed mm -hmm. and. I could turn the clock back. That would be something that I would like to change, you know. That's fair. I think that's fair. Now, so after Sunderland, you move on to Fulham and it's another club, another promotion, another time winning the second division. And this time I was looking through your managers. So there was Paul Bracewell, who you've mentioned before. And then there was John Tigana, who 
I always found his team really exciting. A, a great of the French football game, like one, like I think he won trophies with France, right? Was one of their greatest players. How was it to work under Tigana and alongside players like Louis Saha, Louis Boamorte, um, I think it was Steve Malbronk. Like it was a really exciting squad, right? Yeah, when then ended up having, I think it was six seasons. Brilliant football mm-hmm. club. Absolutely love my time there. Have a lot of affection for the club still. Love going back to the cottage, the people uh, behind the scenes, the support us were just superb. My teammates, like you say, I, you know, the managers I had, Paul, was tough because when Paul obviously got sacked, you, you, you feel responsible for that especially with someone so close, that the relationship I had. And then you get the chance to work with Jean Tigana, who just opened my eyes in terms of fitness, nutrition, preparation, recovery. We were so fit. Um, it's the fittest I've ever been. Um, and we had to be because of the football he wanted us to play. And you rightly say he was part of the, uh, the, the, the him and the Platini midfield at, at the French team, his big friend. And uh, yeah, I had an f- absolutely phenomenal time with them. It was tough, it was hard work, but it was enjoyable because, you know, as I said, he got us super fit, but he, he allowed us to go and express ourselves and, and show our strengths and, uh, you know, try and be positive and as you said we we ended up smashing the championship again and then we got into Europe with the club mm-hmm. well so and as you said we made some terrific signings when we got back into the Premier League and for us at the time we brought as you say Steve Malbronk was unknown but through Christian Damiano who's Tigano's assistant who was part of the famous Claire Fontaine Academy with Gerard Houllier and you Steed come through the youth ranks and he brought this young, quiet French, well, a bit half Belgian, half French boy in. And uh, he was a ridiculous talent. Louis Saha, you know, was a snip at two million. You know, Louis could do everything as a striker. Great speed, great technique, great leap. Um, and, you know, and then Edwin van der Sar, you know, we ended up getting one of the best goalkeepers of his generation. Um, yeah, so it was a real tremendous time to, to, to help the club go in that direction. And I think I'm going to say this is the first of the kind of interesting owners of a football club that you might have um, bumped into. What was your first experience of meeting Al Fayed like? And are the kind of, is his reputation fair as a bit eccentric? Absolutely he's eccentric, but I tell you <laughs> what, for um, players who played for him, he was second to none he was there was nobody better he looked after the players we had no excuses in terms of the facilities we had uh, the travel um, etc there was no excuse in terms of our preparation he was up continually upgrading Motspur Park with training facility he the way the families were looked after the wives the girlfriends the children uh, was phenomenal so, and I can imagine he was a tough boss to work for as a manager or head coach because he had probably high demands, you know, mm-hmm. he, he pushing the club forward, um, but could have no excuses. We, uh, as you said, eccentric, but loved that part of him as well. And uh, as I said, he was part 
he was the the man running the the organisation that allowed me to have six, nearly seven brilliant years in London at a brilliant club. And for someone from the northeast, as I said, that's the reason I stayed at Sunderland. I never ever thought I'd move to London. Mm -hmm. uh, whenever we played there, I always felt it was like too big for us in terms of the you know when I'd go for a walk before the game. I thought, wow, this place is huge. Um, just wanted to play the game, get out, but ended up moving down there and living down there and loved living down there and, and loved the club I was at. So, and, and, and then the way he ran the club was uh, was pop a huge part of that. Mm, yeah, no, I, I think those years at Fulham, I always loved watching those teams. I thought they were just, a lot of those players were really exciting, really, really exciting players. So after... Fulham, you have a bit of a homecoming and you go back to Newcastle. Did you always know that you wanted to kind of end your career at Newcastle or you wanted to go back? No, listen, I thought the time had gone. I thought it had all bypassed me. Um, so that was something that was never, was always a dream, but, you know, thought it was a dream that could never happen. Thought it had gone, was 33. But, you know, I was into my coaching. I'd got my an ear license and I was starting to progress towards my pro license and I knew that I was so what they decided to do they offered me an opportunity to come in as a player coach I knew the role in terms of the player was basically as a backup in case there was any injury issues or whatever and I was going to be learning my trade as a coach under the then uh, you know reserve team manager so yeah it was that that was the idea but quickly got in there and I must impress Graham Souness because within a few weeks I was in the team mm -hmm. I ended up playing between 25 and 30 Premier League games so it was a, a homecoming that I never dreamed of but it was a brilliant way to end my career um, I needed to have an operation at the end of that season and I decided right then you know that's it I started here I'll finish here and uh, then you know, dedicated myself into my coaching and, and managerial career then. So this is when you became assistant to Glenn Roder, right? Towards the end of your time. And then you finally, well, then you get into management yourself and your first opportunity in management in the game is Huddersfield in League One. So um, this was a, a kind of exciting time for the club. You got to the playoffs a few times. How do you look back at your time as Huddersfield now? And as a club, like what did you learn in your first management experience? It was brilliant. I was working for an owner, Dean Hoyle. We were very aligned, same sort of age bracket and uh, had a great working relationship, very open. When we went into the club, you know, because I was his first real appointment after he took over, he was a Huddersfield fan, done very well in his business life, decided he wanted to try and put something back into the club and uh, we took over and there wasn't really a, a sign of a football club there in terms of... Mm. That there was no value to the squad. Yes, the academy were getting players in, but that was because of the standard of the first team. So we wanted to start upping the, the standards of everything. Uh, we had no training facility. We would use um, a, a local university with porter cabins. So we decided, you know, there was no recruitment team set up. And we'd done all this stuff. And, and, and all while that was happening, we were building a team and a squad that was exciting on the pitch. Our first transfer window, we went for, we decided to go for young, hungry, exciting players. And they, they, they came in and done brilliantly for us. 
and uh, yeah, we added a lot of value to the group, the group, but we're also playing exciting football. We lost in the semi-final to a strong Millwall team who eventually went up in the in the playoffs. Lost to Peter Brand the final the following season, and then the season after that got 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 the promotion, and uh, obviously have the football league record still is forty three games unbeaten, mm. and um, yeah, the team. And the players went on to have fantastic careers. Some of them got some magnificent moves, big, big money moves. And uh, the club progressed and a few years down the line, uh, got, got themselves in the Premier League themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you had players like Jordan Rhodes, like was your kind of, well, your top scorer in your time there. Like, I, I, Could you see that he could play at a higher level straight away? Because he, again, was scoring incredible amount of goals. Well, football is about timing, isn't it? When I was assistant manager at Glen at Norwich, Jordan was a young striker at Ipswich and they came over to Colney, um, the Norwich training ground and uh, played, uh, obviously, the you know the, the derby game, Ipswich, uh, Norwich for Ipswich. And, uh, and I noticed this lad and I seen that uh, he just came alive when the, the ball was in the box and his bravery, etc. And he was a... Like he had a calmness and he'd already had a loan spell. By the time I'd got to Huddersfield, he'd already had a loan spell at, at Brentford when they were in the lower leagues and done really well there. And we, you know, the first thing you're doing when you're looking to, to have an exciting group of players, you want someone who's going to score your goals. And uh, we thought Jordan could do that. Did we ever think he'd get to the numbers he got? I wouldn't have thought so. And uh, ended up being one of the best ever signings for the football club in terms of what was paid and ha- and, and and then what he was sold for, but also what he contributed on the pitch as well. Uh, as you said, with the playoffs, you kind of, it took a, a few attempts to get there and you see a lot with teams that kind of lose in the playoff final or lose in a playoff semi-final. The next season, they might struggle or they might get nowhere near the playoffs. How did you keep the team like consistently up at the playoffs, how do you motivate your team once they've had that? Like, because losing in the playoffs is brutal, right? If you lose in the final, how do you motivate the team again? Well, you just have to use those experiences, which are awful, to 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 make sure you never have them again, and you go that one step further. You know, like I said, our first window was young, hungry players. Then, mm-hmm. after we lost in the semi-final against a really powerful, strong Millwall team, we knew that we needed a bit of experience alongside those young, exciting players as well to help them through and a bit of physicality. So that's what we've done in the the, the, the next kind of windows. So, yeah, we you know, it was uh, it, it was trying to understand where the group was. And, uh, you know, that season we got beaten the playoff final. I think at that time we, we, we recorded a record number of points for a team not to get automatic mm. promotion. Um, I think uh, it was at Brighton and Southampton got the top two places. Um, you know, I just rattled two teams off there, but at one stage in League One, there was 12, I think there was 10 to 12 clubs with uh, Premier League experience. And mm. all that have gone on to Premier League. Obviously, the two I've mentioned there, Brighton, Southampton, Norwich City, Charlton Athletic, Sheffield Wednesday, Sheffield United. Uh, you know, the, so many clubs. Um that have uh, experienced, you know, playing in the Premier League uh, around then. So it was, it was, it, it was a tough old league, league one at that time, and um, you know, many competitors. But you know, a, a great time for me. Love, love the club. Was it the final when they got from the Championship to the Premier League? 
uh, was delighted for the fans. It was a great day, um, you know, and the two years they had there, they, they contributed really well. Unfortunately, when they came back out, they found it a bit more difficult mm. to sustain. I just hope that they can um, they can stay in the championship this year with the you know their the current head coach as a player. Uh, coached at Norwich City, Mark Fotheringham. So I know Fozzie really well and hopefully he can do enough to keep the club in the championship and then they can rebuild again. Mm, yeah, we see it quite often with teams that come down that they then go down again, right? It's quite a hard adjustment period. But after Huddersfield, you find, you then take uh, the job at Birmingham. Now, I think Birmingham is a club that is... Um, I never know what's going on at Birmingham, and I think people who support Birmingham City don't really know what's going on at Birmingham. Um, how? What were your impressions of the club and the owners when you took over? Because I think people aren't even sure who owns the club. Well, when I took over the job, the ownership were very positive. Chris Hutton had got them into the playoffs, and the the next the, the conversations we had was, can we go one better and get automatic mm-hmm. and get promoted to the Premier League? But within two or three weeks of me taking over on the 1st of July, Carson Young was the owner, uh, based in Hong Kong. He got put under house arrest. All his assets got frozen. And then the demeanour around the club changed. We had to go. We had. A, we went from a club that was going to have a competitive budget to, be, to try and get out of there and get into the Premier League to a club that then had to change its philosophy in terms of reducing the wage bill dramatically. Um, in a short period of time and the, what we had to do then was sell some of the club's you know uh, golden generation in terms of young players for fees that were probably undervalued and Jack Butlin mm-hmm. went for a, a, only three and a half million to Stoke or thereabouts Nathan Redmond another exciting player to Norwich City and these are young players you want to build the team around but a magnificent football club in terms of the people behind the scenes, the English um, department in terms of the administration side of the club were fantastic people. You know, they kept the club running. They still try to keep a Premier League mentality and how they try to do things, you know, financially limited. Uh, the stadium, the, the, the support, the training facility. I mean, the support as... They've gone through, you know, they're going through it again with a new uh, ownership group. Uh, I'm probably going to be biased, but they've had the toughest run of Mm -hmm. uh, luck in disappointing ownership groups out of most fans in in football, and especially in England. They couldn't support that team in numbers. The day, the famous day we stayed up at Bolton, when we had 5,000 there, we stayed up with it because of them. They stuck by the team. They showed that support and that belief of those players. And uh, I hope one day there's an ownership group that can really start to put things in place, the right structures in place for that football club so the fans can get back where they deserve to be. And that's in the Premier League. Um, and and, and they, they don't have to keep going through, you know, relegation battle after relegation battle and having to sell best players and, thinking is the club going to go into administration, transfer embargoes. It's, you know, as I said, those fans deserve so much better. Yeah, I think we all want to see Birmingham with two competitive clubs, right? That Villa-Birmingham derby is huge. And I think, again, when Birmingham were in the Premier League, I think they were a really good addition. And we don't like seeing any club kind of going through what they're going through. So after Birmingham, you find yourself at another club that's kind of gone through the worst thing that can happen to a football club, really, now that they 
no longer exists. Now, when you took over Berry, um, it was very much a kind of the owner had put in a lot of money and it was a it was a gamble that had been taken, right? It was get the like Jermaine Beckford, the likes of these players, try and get promotion. How was the environment around Berry and could you see the the situation that was unfolding? Well, when I initially went in, there was second bottom in February mm. when they headhunted me from Kilmarnock and the remit was to keep the club in the league and, and we'd done that. And uh, we decided that um, we wanted to try and push and go at the opposite end. We didn't enjoy that relegation battle, but we came out of it successful with 14 games to go. The window was shut, so it was, you couldn't do anything in the transfer market. And uh, the owner decided to, to back us and we made some exciting signings of what we thought. Uh, but for whatever reason, it just didn't gel. And then towards the end of my tenure, there was, you know, murmurings of... You know, players going unpaid salaries and stuff like that. And then the, and when I now moved on, you know, uh, the club then got sold and the new owner seemed to be somebody who didn't really understand the financial aspects of football. Because uh, completely different to business. You know, mm. you're successful businessmen go into football and, and it's completely run in a completely different way. And, uh, you know, this... The guy there then quickly realised it wasn't for him. Did he? I don't know if he had the funds or not. To, and it just got horrible and got messy, and and, and the the club went out of business. And you never want that on anybody, you know. The fans they they go out in their numbers, and however many fans they get, it's it's their club, it's their community, and you never want that to happen. So that that was an awful period for the people there. The the the, the people. Great people. There was good, very, very good people there, mm-hmm. uh, and, you, and they've tried. They're bringing the club back, obviously under a new name, trying to resurrect it. And it's because of their love of the club, and uh, you know they're not there to to enjoy all the glory. That you know that mm-hmm. some horrible times, and hopefully they can one day get back into the, to the football league. Yeah, I hope so. We hope so. Per- uh, nice. So then after Barry, um, well, shortly after Barry, you kind of first take your management abroad and this is first going to the Sudan. So how did you find yourself in Sudan taking over Almeric? Just through an agent I dealt with in Birmingham. About over mm-hmm. place. He had some contacts. Offered me this chance of this huge club in, in Sudan, uh, in Africa. And... Uh, I went and I was blown away the, the the support the club got on the streets. I mean, and they were the another you know, club called Al Hilal, the two biggest clubs, biggest biggest rivals in Sudan. And uh, you know, it's between those club two clubs who who win the league, and uh, also they compete in the African Champions League, which was a big pull for me. And uh, had some great trips. We obviously played Al Ali, which is a huge club in Egypt. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're the African equivalent of Man United or Real Madrid with a number of African uh, Champions League they've won. They get 80,000 fans. Wow. Uh, imagine we, us at Merrick were getting 42,000, 45,000. And the, the noise and the, the, it's non-stop. It's just it's just crazy how they go about their football. So mm-hmm. in that terms, it was a great experience, you know, learning a new culture, um, dealing with the new players and uh, different types and um, 
on a different continent and had a great time competing in the Champions League. Had two spells at the club and uh, got some real positive results for the club because the, when the club um, qualified, they're always one of the lower-ranked teams to be in the qualification period in the group stage. So it would always be like in the fourth pot, so the Malawi Sundowns, Al-Ali, and our rivals, Al-Hilal, that was our group the last time. And, uh, you know, we we, we, had, we give a right good go of it, but unfortunately finished third in the group and missed out on qualification. Yeah, I think whenever we talk about the kind of like, because we've had a few guests on that talked about managing in the African Champions League or managing in Africa, I think it's easy for us to not realise how huge the following is there and how big the attendances are. And these giant clubs like Al-Ali are like, like you said, they're like Manchester United, Real Madrid. They're like huge, huge presences. Um, so after Sudan, you find yourself in Oman at Al-Itihad. And what were the... What were the first like things you learned about that footballing culture? What were the differences you noticed? Um, well, when I got there, I was a man, beautiful country, um, and our facilities, our training pitches, our stadium were magnificent. There wasn't a lot of uh, encouragement; like we didn't get big crowds at all. Oh wow! Okay. But, um, you know, and it, what I did find there was it wasn't as, uh, how can I put it, it wasn't as important for the okay. play and the support as the football. Win, lose, or draw, so I found that difficult. That's why I didn't really spend a, end up spending a long time there. Mm. Uh, you know, we had a good start. We, bet, we beat some of our rivals. How you how you basically done it was it was, you, um, we were based in an area called Salala, which is a coastal town, lovely, um, and we had a beautiful stadium there, which three or four clubs around that area would use. So you would either use that stadium in Salala, or you'd go to the capital in Muscat and and play games there. So there was like half the league would be playing in Muscat and half the league up, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, we got to the semi-final of the, the the League Cup there. The first time the club had got to that level, um, lost disappointingly, um, and uh, yeah, I, I I found that one difficult because obviously, you know, born with that winning mentality and wanting to win and hurting when it didn't win, I, I wasn't finding that really happening there, and it was a tough one. And I I, I just felt that, you know. The people were great, don't get us wrong, and treat me so well, but I just felt that it was that was the wrong move because it was a different type of mentality to football. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, yeah, quickly, you know, didn't only a couple of months there, but still still a great experience. I, I, I take all these things and, and try and use them in the right way. Nice. Well, Lee, we're going to try and kind of wrap up now because I'm aware of time. So are you wanting to get back into management now? Are there any countries in particular that you're like, I would love to manage there? Uh, I'm not pursuing strongly. I've got to say probably my thought process is my overseas managerial career is over unless mm. something crazy comes out of out of something, which I cannot see happening. Um, still open in the UK. Uh, had a great time up in Scotland and obviously in, in some good times in, in, in England. So if the right opportunity, but enjoying being in your castle fan again. 
Diane, Diane's supportive for my son and and hopefully spend a bit more time up and down the country and even abroad and in Europe to see him progressing. So, yeah, enjoying that side of it at the moment. Nice. We'll be keeping an eye on his career as well, I think. So, Lee, just a few quick-fire questions before we let you go, I promise. Uh, so, firstly, the best player that you've played with? Oh, it's tough because, as I mentioned, all the strikers and mm-hmm. like Alan Shearer, the Premier League uh, um, top goal scorer. But for me, Peter Beardsley um, was a phenomenal footballer, the best player to, to wear a black and white shirt in both spells. I was lucky enough, I watched him in the 80s and I was lucky enough to play alongside him in the 90s. You forget what he'd done for Liverpool as well. So Peter's probably up on that one. Nice. The best player you've played against? Domestically, Phil, um, Roy Keane and Paul Scholes. Internationally or in Europe, uh, Zinedine Zidane. Wow. That is three good names. I like that. I think that might be the best answer we've had so far. Um, the best player you've coached? The player you coached, you were like, this guy is different. Well, probably this one is the most frustrating one. And there's a player called Ravel Morrison. Who had I was everything. going to ask about him, yeah. I had everything. He was an amazing talent. And just try, repeating what Sir Alex said about him, unfortunately his career went, didn't get to the levels it should have because of mm-hmm. things off the field, you know, um, his lifestyle. And not in terms of him being a bad, bad guy, just, you know, sometimes you have to have the distractions probably is the mm-hmm. easiest to see it, but... An absolutely phenomenal young man with ability just coming out of his ears. Nice. Um, your proudest moment as a player? Lots, but probably my debut for Newcastle United, living the dream, going from a fan to a player. Nothing can top that. Nice. And your proudest moment as a manager? Um. Oh. Well, obviously, Huddersfield stands out because of what we built and achieved, but I'd probably say because of the predicament and the state of the club behind the scenes, keeping Birmingham City in the championship, probably it was a, a, a more difficult, far more difficult situation for us to keep our championship status, the dead ball. Yeah, definitely. Nice. And the last question, your favourite goal that you scored? Well, it's not many. And... <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, trying to think. Probably my first, my first for Newcastle. Um, nice. uh, Wolves, it was in a header and I didn't score many headers. So <laughs> Beautiful. Well, thank you, Lee. That was really enjoyable. Thanks for coming on to the show. Um, and yeah, we'll definitely be keeping an eye out for Bobby and seeing, um, seeing how he gets on. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Thanks a lot, mate. Cheers. Bye. Podcast Network.